Find a comfortable spot that's dry. Our theme for the summer is the great reversal. And we're looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. We called it that because of when you look at the Beatitudes and how they develop throughout history, uh, you see some things that actually relate to us today. If you go all the way back, and some of you that have been here in the previous Sundays have heard this, if you go all the way back into the ancient Greek culture, uh, the concept or the genre, the literary type called what we call Beatitude, Blessed Are, was well known. Uh, it occurred in the ancient literature to describe the gods. Blessed are the gods basically because they are uh, above all of this stuff, this brokenness, everything that we experience, they're above all that. Pretty soon it developed into blessed are those who are in charge and leadership, blessed are the wealthy because they're above all this as well. Then when you move into the Old Testament and look at the same uh, thing, the Beatitudes in the Old Testament, they shifted a little bit and they help you to see that the people who are most blessed are those that find their presence, their existence, their forgiveness, their love, all of that in the Lord. So they locate the blessedness of people in God's presence, which we believe to be true, don't we? That's part of our, that's part of our message. When you get to Jesus, subtle things begin to happen. He begins to overturn culture, which is why we call it the great reversal. And he begins to highlight, no, the very things that we live with every day, every day of our lives, that's actually who the happy people are. Those are the blessed people. Those are the people that are truly blessed. He takes the values, the human values that culture despises or looks down on and says, this is where the true blessing is. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Today, we're going to look in Matthew 7, 5, 7. Blessed are the uh, merciful, they shall be shown mercy. And so what Christ does is he takes all of these. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, Matthew 7, um, you can just see it there. The verse is actually very short in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But he talks about the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Mark asked the question when he talked about mourning. How many of you woke up today and said, I think I want to mourn more? Right? Yeah, I <laughs> see a bunch of you shaking your heads. No, that's not the way we think, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, for they will be filled. That's where we were last week. So what Christ does is he takes these, these cultural, these human values that, the, that are looked down on, and he says, these are the ones that result in blessing. And that's where the power of the beatitude lies, Right there, in taking some of these really low, these mundane, these bottom of the barrel, these things that we all experience, and says, no, that's where the real blessing is, right there. This is, the, in Matthew, this is the beginning of his teaching on, this, on uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven. And so we're beginning to get insight into what's, what's really going on. He's introducing, oh, don't you love the sun? Just great. Shows you how powerful that son is. So he's introducing concepts very at the very beginning of his ministry that highlight what the true kingdom looks like. And what it looks like is us. It's us. We are those people. And you know what? I, 
suffering is very interesting. And all of these, these descriptions here, they fit within that context of life is hard. Life is challenging. Life is difficult. On the best of days, we still struggle, don't we? Every now and then we have days where it's just going perfect, and then boom, it's just faster than you can blink, it's gone. Well, that's something that the world actually understands. The world understands that. And so when we live our lives, when we live out our faith in all these categories, the world can look at us and they can see a model of another way, another pathway to managing these struggles. Because they see it in us, we live by faith. And we demonstrate love. And so they get a chance to see it. So suffering and all of these human qualities that Jesus is talking about, these are the norm for most of us. These are the norm. We don't live above it all. We live right smack in the middle of it. So blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So let's talk a little bit about mercy uh, and kind of get a sense of what was going on again. Like all of the other Beatitudes, when you trace them through history, you see a great reversal of what Jesus was talking about, talking about something very different. So when you go all the way back again into the, into the ancient world of Greece and you begin to look at mercy, uh, it, was, it was a character quality to be emulated. The gods were shown to be merciful. The uh, wealthy people were shown to be merciful. But what they had in mind was more the concept of pity. You see, mercy in the ancient world had more to do with you're looking at someone who's going through something that you don't want to go through. And you're going, I'm glad it's not me. It involved a little bit of fear. This concept of mercy in the ancient world Fear because I'm glad it's not me, but it very well could be. I don't want to go through that. It involved a sense of, of partiality. People in the court system, they pled on the mercy of the judges. So the Stoics in the ancient world thought that it was a, a sickness of the soul because it led the judge to be partial and feel sorry for people. So it had this concept of pity. So I was talking to Nancy about this whole concept of pity, and she's reading a, a mystery. And so she, she, she gave me these words. Um, it describes what's about to happen with Jesus very, very well when you distinguish between mercy, I mean pity and compassion. These are very two very different concepts. So you have this conversation going on between a lady and a man, and she's explaining. It's this mystery. I haven't read the book. I just read this one section because she read it to me. It was fantastic. And this lady's talking about the near enemy. And so the man said, what on earth is that? What's a near enemy? She said, it's a psychological concept. Two emotions that look the same but are actually opposites. The one parades as the other is mistaken for the other, but one is healthy and the other is sick and twisted. So the man's kind of pondering that, and he says, can you, can you give me an example? She says, sure. There are three couplings that will illustrate it. Attachment masquerades as love. So attachment masquerades as love. 
Pity masquerades as compassion, and indifference masquerades as uh, equanimity. So he's pondering that and doesn't quite get it. So he says, I don't understand. Can you explain it? And she said, yes. Pity and compassion are the easiest to understand. Compassion involves empathy. Now think about the difference carefully here. Compassion involves empathy. You see the stricken person as an equal. Pity doesn't. If you pity someone else, you feel superior. Understand the difference? This is the root of this idea back in the ancient world. Compassion involves empathy. You see the stricken person as an equal. The Good Samaritan. Pity doesn't. If you, if you pity someone, you feel superior. But it's hard to tell the one from the other, the man says. And she says, exactly. Even for the person feeling it, almost everyone would claim to be full of compassion. It's one of the noble emotions. But really, it's just pity that they feel. So glad it's not me. See the difference between pity and compassion? So the ancient view of mercy had more to do with pity. Those that were above it all, who were thankful that they didn't have to go through what everyone else went through. That's not what you get when you turn to the Bible. When you turn to the Old Testament, you begin to see things a little bit differently. In Isaiah 63, for example, we're going to read that in just a second. The word, uh, Mark has, has mentioned this, and it's very helpful. The, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, gives us an idea of how they understood some of these Hebrew terms by the way they translate them. So the word most translated merciful is a word in the Old Testament, which is a very powerful theological word. It has to do with the loving kindness of God. His covenant promise, he binds himself to us the day he made us, the day he created us. He binds himself to us, and he shows this incredible love toward us. Many of you have heard me say, especially if you're adult parents, and we've talked that uh, when it comes to your children, here's what you can be sure of with complete confidence. God loves them more than you do. Isn't that great? Because not every day do we love our, our children. <laughs> God loves them more than we do. Number two is God has been involved intimately more in, the, in their lives than you ever will be. And number three, God has more experience with their struggle with sin than you'll ever have. In other words, relax. And God, I believe, is pursuing every human on the planet. And that's what's behind this idea of loving kindness. This word occurs like 350 times in the Old Testament. This deep commitment by God to move into the lives of his creation regularly into the lives of people around the world, every human. You know, it's not a statistical game whether or not you come to Christ. A person in America has no higher probability of finding Christ than a person in, from Iran because we serve a living God who cares about every human. It's not a statistical game. God says over and over again here, if you search for me, I will be found by you. Look at the Apostle Paul. It's fantastic what happened with Paul. And so this is idea, the idea of God is covenanting himself. He's promising. He's committing. He's binding himself to come into our lives to engage us. And that's the word that begins to emerge when you look in the, in the Bible. 
with the same concept of mercy. It's not about pity. It's not about looking down on someone. Whew, I'm glad it's you and not me. We have some examples of that with the Pharisees. No, no, no. It's something very different. It's over here. It's about the idea of engagement, that, that we see each other as peers. And it doesn't matter the most or the, the least fortunate among us. It's somebody that we care about. And we engage them. And we step into them. When the world looks at us, do they see us doing that? You see, that's what the church is all about. Blessed are these kind of people, the merciful. These are the ones who show that level of commitment, that level of engagement. In Isaiah 63, verse 7. This is in the last portion of Isaiah. I think it's talking about the coming of the Messiah, that period of time, period of time that we live in right now. Listen to these words. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord. The word kindness is, is that word that's translated many, many times as mercy. I will tell of the mercies of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He says, surely they are my people. Surely uh, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and mercy. Here's that word again. Do you see this commitment by the Lord to step into our world and not feel pitiful, but to feel compassion and empathy? In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And that becomes a picture. That becomes a picture that we are to be like. Micah 6.8, famous verse. How many of you know Micah 6.8? Okay, a bunch of you do. You know, this, Micah is a great book. It's written to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has been uh, pretty much destroyed by now, and all the refugees are coming from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. They are, these are the, the kinsmen of the people in Jerusalem and Judah. And so they begin to say, stay out. We don't want you here. And here's this famous verse. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what, does the, uh, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy. There it is. To walk humbly with your God. How many of you have heard that verse? Yeah, the rest of the hands go up. That's Micah 6.8. That's what's behind this idea of mercy. It is engagement. It's, it's not pity like the ancients thought. It's empathy, it's compassion, where we move into the lives of each other for the purpose of helping. And when people befall certain things in their life, maybe bankruptcy, loss of job, who knows what it is? The death of somebody, we, we move in. We move in with love and kindness, with empathy, with compassion to help them. These are the stories that we see in the Bible. You have, I mentioned the Good Samaritan. It says at the end of that story of the Good Samaritan, uh, Jesus asked the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, so who is the one who is righteous? And they said, the one who showed mercy. Now, remember where we were last week. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Beginning with this beatitude today, now we're moving into what does it look like to live out that righteousness, to cultivate that level of hunger 
So we're moving into the Beatitudes that are now behaviorally oriented. They're talking about the way we live life. You want to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Show that level of empathy for people that are, that are undergoing something that you're not undergoing. Show that level of compassion. We have a story in Matthew 18 of the unmerciful servant. Remember this, the parable? Uh, he, he, was owed, he owed a great deal of money, and the landowner called him in, and he begged and pleaded for mercy, and he says, okay, I'll give you that, so I'll give you the rest of life, basically, to pay off the debt. So then he goes out and finds somebody that owes him money and beats the guy mercilessly and throws, sells him and his family, uh, throws him into prison, a debtor's prison, for the rest of life. And the servants all see this, and they get really irate, and they go to the landowner, and they say, did you see what this guy did? So he calls this wicked, this unmerciful servant back, and that's the word that's used, unmerciful, called him back into his presence and said, you wicked person, I granted you mercy, and you did not. You're done. And then he concludes and says, and that's what God is like. That's how God's going to treat all those who are unmerciful. So it's a very powerful, very powerful statement. And finally, in Hebrews 2, we have a surprising statement about Jesus. And this word is right there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, us, fully human. Get that? Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become that way. He had to experience life like us. That's what qualified him to be our high priest in Hebrews, I think, was living life like us, so that he could become merciful, so that he could do what he needed to do, engage in life with us, in order to bring about redemption and atonement. There's the example of mercy. There's the example. So that raises a question. The poor and oppressed, they are asked to give out what they have not received. Think about that. The people at the bottom, that's been you on many occasions, several of you. You just long for someone to show compassion and mercy, and you're often doing it alone. And you're asked to give out what you haven't received. So, does that mean that we, um, we should just give everything to the poor? When you, walk, when you pull up to a uh, street corner and there's a person holding a sign right there, do you naturally think, I should in some way be engaged with this person or do you think there's a government program to help them? I love asking that question in the classroom because almost 100% of the time they think there's a government program to help them. That's the world we live in. And yet the amazing thing about the body of Christ, the kingdom on earth, is that we are to be the people that engage. So does that mean we just give everything to the poor? Is that what that means? I don't think so. There's a real famous verse in Galatians 6 I'm going to read to you. The opening uh, verse, Galatians 6, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. I love those words, gently. But watch yourselves or you'll be tempted to fall into the same sin, whatever it is. And then he goes on and, and he puts together this 
odd combination. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens. If anyone thinks they are something, when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, and they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Now, wait a minute. What is it? Do we carry our own burdens, or do we carry our own load? Which one is it? And here, I think, is introduced that paradox that defines the kingdom. You see, when we carry each other's burdens, we are protecting the unity of the church. If you have a burden and we don't help you, boy, that's the fastest way to create fracture and division. But on the other side of it, we have the responsibility to carry our own load. You see, that guards against entitlement. If you ask any church, any church that has a benevolence fund, they will tell you stories of people that come to them and say, uh, you're a Christian, you're obligated to help me. It's real common. No, we're not. We do it out of love. Are you carrying your own burden? You see, it presents this type of relationship here. And this is what guards, this paradox is what guards against disunity on one end and entitlement on the other. No, we're not entitled. With careful foresight and planning, we are willing to let people go hungry as a church because they're not willing to carry their own load. Paul talks about in Ephesians, if no one's not willing to work, they shouldn't eat either. And so it produces this right here. And if we're not careful, if we just give money away and resources without looking at the other side, we begin to produce, produce an unhealthy community. We begin to produce dependency. We begin, begin to produce a whole series of things that are not good. And that's what this idea of mercy is. It doesn't mean give everything away. It means you engage yourself with the other person for the purpose of taking them to a better place. That's what it means. So you see how this word developed over time in the ancient world? It's about pity. Who? I'm sorry what you're going through. Boy, I'm glad it's you and not me. It creates this. And as we move into the Old Testament, into the teachings of Jesus, that gets, pity gets replaced with empathy and compassion. Uh, we are equals, and I want to be engaged with you on the journey. And I want to help you get to a better place. That's what the kingdom is all about. Now, the amazing thing about it is, blessed are those who live that kind of life. Why? Because they are the ones who receive that kind of mercy from the Lord. That covenant, that commitment, that deep love, that compassionate love where he moves in your life for the purpose of helping you get to a better place. That's what Christ had to learn when he came to the earth. That's what he had to learn. What type of person are you? Are you over here? Whew. I'm glad I'm not like those people. Is that what type of person you are? Or are you over here? God has given me a purpose, and he's given me the ability to move into people's lives 
for the whole purpose of bringing the kingdom to bear in their life and helping them to move to a better place. Which one are you? Father, thank you. We are deeply grateful that you are a merciful God, that you care for us very much. We are deeply grateful that you love us so deeply and you engage with us daily in our lives. Father, we can't always see it. I'll be honest with you, we can't always see that you're there. We have to live by faith that you are there. Uh, because it's very difficult sometimes when we, need, when we feel like we need you to rescue us and we don't sense that you're rescuing us. Help us to be people of faith and people of mercy to know that you are there. We are so very grateful. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers.